Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 through 10. This is one of, in my opinion, this is one of those jewels in scripture. This is one of those rare glimpses into the process of, uh, of God's work through men in the world. So we'll keep that in mind. The call of God, the precious word of God. Look at this in verse uh, one. And the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh or serving Yahweh before Eli. Now the word of Yahweh was rare or precious or prized in those days. Vision or revelation had not broken through. The Bible says in Proverbs, and it's the same, it's the same, uh, it's the same, it's the same Hebrew word, vision or revelation. Where there is no revelation, the people perish. Well, let me back up and talk about the other word here, uh, yakar, the, the word of Yahweh was rare or precious or prized. This, this is a more sobering question than you might think off the top of your heads. But suppose God didn't call anybody or send anybody to preach or teach or prophesy. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, and we learn, we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, there were periods of time where, where God, didn't, God didn't send anybody. What about that? God knows. As a matter of fact, we're, we're in one of those times here in 1 Samuel, I mean, yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Because this is in that time where you have to go back to Judges. We're in the era of the Judges here. We're at the end of the era of the Judges. You have to go back to Judges, was it 21? That's the last, Judges 21 in the last verse is about 25, something like that. And it says there at the end of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel in those days and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So it was an era of humanism, uh, an era of saying, I will, I will just, uh, I, will, I will take what I want from, from the Torah, from the law, from the word of God they had at that time. I'll leave the other parts of it. Nobody to teach them. Nobody to prophesy. Now from time to time, God would raise up a judge, one of the judges, the rabbis called them saviors. The era of the judges spanned about 300 years. We're coming here to the end of that. Samuel ends the judges and begins what I call the school of the prophets or the time of the prophets. Now, there are other prophets before Samuel. We'll talk about that here in just a second. 
But they were not, they were not those uh, specifically focused prophets who were writing prophets, who wrote down. Their, their prophecy was written and preserved. So the word of Yahweh was rare or precious or prized. Uh, the word there, uh, yakar, the, the, the word means that uh, people didn't hear it because God wasn't sending men to preach it. It's an awful thought. It really is. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, knows what to do and when to do it. So in the era of the judges, the people were too backslidden at best. Um, they were... They were in darkness. They were every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. It's interesting how the Bible can take a sentence and in just three or four words give to us a description that, that causes us to think of the overwhelming um, problem that existed among the people of God. As I said, they had the Torah. They had, uh, they had a, a kind of worship at a fixed place where the ark was and the tabernacle. It's, it's all, they also referenced it here in this passage we're looking at tonight as the temple. But it wasn't the temple yet. It wasn't Solomon's temple. So, the word of Yahweh was prized, rare. Why? Because God had given no revelation to a prophet. No man had been called by God to preach, to teach, to prophesy. And to deliver, thus saith the Lord. So in this summary here, we get an idea of how bad things were spiritually in these days among the people of God. The effectual call of God. It was at that time that Eli was lying in his place. His eyes had begun to grow dim. He couldn't see. And the lamp of Elohim had not gone out yet. Okay, that's, that's in the place where the lamp is. And one of the duties of the priesthood was to light it in the evening. And it would go out somewhere around dawn. So it's, it's, uh, it's in the middle of the night. Light hadn't gone out yet. Samuel was lying in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. That's not to say that he was in the holy of holies. It is to say that he's in the thing called the tabernacle or the temple. And that's the place where the ark of, of, of God was. Now why does it say where the ark of God was? Because God's presence for his people in that day 
was where that ark was. So Samuel was in close proximity to where Yahweh, where God would meet his people at the appointed times in the appointed way for atonement, sacrifices, so forth. Now, at that time, all right, keep that in mind because this is all very specific. This all works according to the plan of God. We know, we know what time of night it was. We know where it was, and we know who the characters are that are involved. That tells us a lot. Yahweh called or summoned uh, it's a vehicle. The, the Hebrew word, rich word, to call, to summon, it's a, it's, it's, it's a word, it's an action for a specific pers person. That's why it's an effectual call. I can stand on a Sunday morning and there may be a dozen lost people in the congregation. I will issue a general call because to cry out and to preach the gospel and to call people to Christ is part of what I'm supposed to do. Among those dozen, two might be saved, two might come to receive Christ, and ten will not. They all heard me, but it wasn't my call that was the effectual call. It's the call of God that's the effectual call. Ellie was here in this place. Maybe his sons were laying somewhere else. I don't know. But look at the way it's written. Yahweh summoned Samuel. It is a son. The word means to specifically call for the purpose of choosing or even to commission. Yahweh called, summoned Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and he said, here I am, for you've called me. And he said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. And he went and lay down. Now the effectual call of God changes everything. Yahweh continued to call again to Samuel. I want to tell you something that some people don't agree with this and I don't really care. <laughs> because I know from experience. You can say no to God, but you can't say no to God. He won't turn you loose. He'll make you an offer you can't refuse. He'll, he'll put the head of a, of a dead horse in your bed. <laughs> a spiritual thing. I have learned in my life that God knows how to get my attention and turn my no into yes. Look at this. Yahweh continued to call again to Samuel. That's an effectual call. It cannot be rejected. <laughs> 
Sometimes, even in modern Christianity, we lose sight of how greatly powerful and sovereign God is. God's God. He doesn't play around with people. He's very serious about his business. His call. So this, this guy, this little guy, Samuel, doesn't respond the first time. God keeps it up. Samuel arose, went to Eli, said, here I am, you called me. He said, I have not called my son, go back and lie down. Now Samuel had not yet known, understood, experienced. Uh, yada, yada. That means that God had not yet, by his spirit, dealt with Samuel as a prophet to give him the revelation from heaven. That is to divinely inspire him to prophesy and then to be a writing prophet to record what he'd prophesied. That hadn't happened to Samuel yet. So Samuel didn't know at this point, at that moment, that God was dealing with him. He didn't understand that. And the word of Yahweh had not been revealed to him. Now, uh, uh, you got it, you got it. The, the, the Hebrew word means that God had not given him that, that revelation yet, that vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Samuel probably took all of the records and himself edited, thus became the writer of Judges. He gave to us most of First and Second Samuel. Might have given other parts. So this happens in the course of his career as a prophet, but it hadn't happened to him yet. This is a call of God. So he hadn't had any of this revelation yet. We're talking about how precious the Word of God is. The importance of, I, I copied something out that I read this past week that just really struck me. I'm going to read it to you. Because we're talking about God's call into the hearts of His, of His servants. Let's go back over, let's go, but let's look at the timeline of the Bible, okay? Jesus called Abel a prophet. So in some, He wasn't a writing prophet, nothing that He prophesied was recorded, but in his early day, he was a prophet. So we can move forward from there. The book of Jude says that Enoch prophesied. So he was a prophet, Enoch. And he was not, for God took him, right? You can move forward from there, uh, from Enoch. You can move to, uh, uh, well, you can go, you can go, actually go backward from there, from from Abel, from Abel to Seth to Enosh. Seth's son was Enosh, and then after Enosh was born, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Might be that Enosh was a prophet, something anyway. It was because the Holy Spirit sees fit in Genesis 4 at the end of it to tell us that. So you move from there, Enoch, 
and you go from Enoch to Noah. Noah's a prophet. Noah is the transition from the pre-flood world to the post-flood world. So now we jump through the flood and Noah is a prophet. But then there's Shem because the Bible identifies Shem as, uh, identifies Yahweh Elohim as the Lord God of Shem. So Shem is spoken of a little differently. He's the, of course, he's the progenitor of the Semitic peoples. It's strongly believed that Melchizedek and, and Shem are the same person. Melchizedek is a title, is perhaps a name as well. King of righteousness, king of peace. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Shalom. So uh, the rabbis, some of the rabbis teach that uh, he, he's the one who founded the city of Salem, the city of Shalom, the city of peace, which is Jerusalem. And that king of that city, Salem, is the one who blessed Abram after Abram or Abraham defeated the kings of the cities on the plains. Uh, those who had invaded Sodom, Gomorrah, and the others, Gohim and others. And uh, so... Abram won a great victory. He and his 318 trained servants. The king of righteousness comes and blesses him. And Abram tithes, pays a tithe to the king of righteousness. Some say that was Shem. The Bible doesn't say so. But it's an interesting thought. But we're following a timeline here. So now we move from that. Go back a little bit. There's the Tower of Babel in the incident after the flood with the Tower of Babel. And after the Tower of Babel, the languages are confused. Nations are born. The concept of nations, the reality of nations, the table of nations is given in Genesis 10. The reason for Genesis 10 is given in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God confounded the languages. So Genesis 12 introduces us to Abram or Abraham. He was a prophet. He was a patriarch. Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. All right. So after that, we're introduced to Moses, who was a prophet. Moses was also the lawgiver. So he had a, he had a special office in the Bible. Move forward from that, past the wilderness wanderings into the time of Joshua. Joshua was a great leader. After Joshua, the era of the judges creeps in to Israel. And now they're in the era of the judges. The era of the judges are often called the dark ages of Israel. It was just a hard time for them. 300 years. Then, here we are. For all that time they had a judge, but they didn't have a prophet like this. Not like this. An angel would, the angel, the, 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 the uh, what, the angel, Malachiah, the, the angel of the Lord would, would make a visit or so. And, but now, and God's always up to something. Now, 
we're beginning to see how God works because now he's going to raise up a guy. He's going to give him his revelation. He's going to reveal to him his word, his purpose. And he's going to unction him by his great Holy Spirit to then know, experience, understand Yahweh and write these things down. And he will be the one not only to anoint Saul. You remember? We'll see. We'll see it in our study. Samuel was depressed because the people called for a king and God said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Give them what they want. Saul was anointed and then the man after God's own heart and Samuel anointed him as well. David takes us into the era of the kings. So we had, we had prophets, priests and kings throughout the theocracy and the school of the prophets, the writing prophets, the forceful prophets who were the wandering prophets, they, their line ends with John the Baptist, takes us to Jesus, who takes us to the cross, who carries us to the apostles, who by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4 carries us, carry us to where the, the Holy Spirit says through Paul to the Ephesians, God first gave apostles and then prophets. There were New Testament prophets before the completion of the New Testament. And then evangelists and then pastors and teachers. And all of that line, all of those line of people have a specific call of God that nobody else has. And only those people, and it's, it's not, it's, Listen, it's just like the Lord said to the prophet. It's when you go to work for me, it's going to be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach. That's true. God assumes the responsibility of raising up those whom he would send and deliver his word. This is the primary thing that the word of God would be delivered because it's to be prized. I mean the word of God. Not stories or opinions or jokes or whatever. The word of God. Straight from the mind, heart, hand of God. In the case of pastors and teachers, they have to take it the way that God gave it. To the apostles in the Hebrew and the Old Testament... To the, I mean, I'm sorry, to the prophets and to the apostles in the New Testament in the Koine Greek. Now that brings me to this. This was written by, the, the time of the Reformation was extraordinary. There was a divine reset within the church. The Roman church had become power crazed and power hungry and they were doing what the Pharisees did in the time of Jesus. They were adding all kinds of of, of things, man-made traditions and so forth to the Word of God. And people were under a burden. Most of the people couldn't read. As a matter of fact, there was an era during the Roman church there in that time where if you could read and you dared to read the Word of God yourself, you would be killed by the church. The guy, they gave us the printing press and the guy who translated the Bible was killed or printed out the Bible. Now, Martin Luther protested all of that. This was in the 1500s. He wrote, 
he wrote uh, a decree in 1524. It is entitled to the councilmen of all cities in Germany. And it really struck me. This is from the pen of Martin Luther. In an era when the world was, re when the church was reawakening to grace. Let us then foster the learning of languages. He references biblical languages as zealously as we love the gospel. For not for nothing did God have his scripture written down in these two languages alone. The Old Testament in Hebrew, the New in Greek. The languages, therefore, which God did not despise, but chose above all others for his word, we too ought to honor above all others. And let us be sure of this. We shall not long preserve the gospel without languages. I want to speak to that in a minute. Languages are the sheath in which the sword of the Spirit is contained. They are the case in which we carry this jewel. They are the vessel in which we hold this wine. They are the larder in which this food is stored. And as the gospel itself says, they are the baskets in which we bear these loaves and fishes and fragments. Though the faith and the gospel may be proclaimed by simple preachers without the languages, such preaching is flat and tame. Men grow at last wearied and disgusted, and it falls to the ground. But when the preacher is versed in the languages, his discourse has freshness and force. The whole of Scripture is treated, and faith finds itself constantly renewed by a continual variety of words and works. All teachings must be judged. Very important point. For this, a knowledge of the language is needful above all else. The preacher or teacher can expound the Bible from beginning to end as he pleases, accurately or inaccurately. If there is no one there to judge whether he's doing it right or wrong. But in order to judge, one must have a knowledge of the languages. It cannot be done any other way. For this reason, even the apostles themselves considered it necessary to set down the New Testament and hold it fast in the Greek language. Doubtless in order to preserve it for us there safe and sound as in a sacred ark. For they foresaw all that was to come and now has come to pass they knew that if it was left exclusively to men's memory, wild and fearful disorder and confusion and a host of varied interpretations, fancies and doctrines would arise in the Christian church. And that this could not be prevented and the simple folk protected unless the New Testament were set down with certainty in written language. Hence it is inevitable that unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. I've told you on occasion, and, and this all has to do with the call of God, the revelation of God, the delivery of His Word. 
How is it that doctrines can vary so wildly today? How is that? If you go back in time, when Martin Luther wrote this, there was a great conviction among those because of the reawakening in the church. There was a great conviction now escaping, escaping the iron fist of the Roman church where people could read and study the scriptures on their own. The, the, the copies of the original text in the Hebrew for Old Testament, Greek for the, New, for the New Testament. Now those, now those who, were, who were called were unctioned. They're, you know, you, you, won't mistake, you won't mistake the call of God, trust me. Now they have bearing down upon them this great burden to do it right. And not to make the mistakes that the Roman church had carried the church into in the dark ages by just, by just using a language such as Latin that isn't the original language and then creating doctrines out of that. We have, may I say to you, we have denominations today that were created 200, 300 years ago based on the King James language. That's right. And I can tell you that the scriptures they use from the King James language for us today is not, I want to be careful how I say this, it is, it, it, to take a text out of context is pretext, all right? And you have to be very careful how you treat the word, that's my opinion. Very, very careful. Very careful. So Martin Luther is saying, we want to see a, an era of reformation in the church, but we have to go back to how the prophets and the apostles gave to us the blessed sacred word of God. We cannot depend on other people to interpret it, to translate it for us, and then teach it to our dear people. So he gives this conviction across Germany and it, and, it, and it spreads across the early in the 16th century into the 17th century. So when you move forward then into the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, here's what you have. You have a seasoned, experienced pastor who was trained by a seasoned, experienced pastor and his school was not as he couldn't travel. They didn't have train. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't go off to school. They had to sit under the teaching and guidance of an experienced and seasoned pastor. The first thing I've seen, I've read the, 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 the oracles of it. I've read the history of it. The first thing he would do is sit that boy, 11, 12, 13 years old, down and teach him Hebrew and Greek. First thing he'd do. By the time the boy would be 17 years old, he was fluent in Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. He knew exactly what the words said. He knew the voice, tense, and mood. And he knew that this was the Word of God. And if it said it there, anything that varied that, even in the slightest way from that, was wrong. 
admittedly, translations can, 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 can bounce around. They can wiggle a little bit. You have to be careful. Careful. So this moves through the church up all the way through. And by the time of Spurgeon, Spurgeon had a school for pastors, for young men to become ministers. They were taught these things as well. But other ideas, worldly ideas, translations and so loose translations, these things get introduced and then false doctrine is introduced. It's something that's nowhere, it's nothing like what the original text says that it is. As a matter of fact, 1611, the 1611 English of 1611 is not the same English of today. So many words are different. Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The Greek word means in every action of your life. But if you read that, and that's what it meant to those people who read it in 1611. But today the word conversation means the way you talk. So we'd read that and we could build a sermon over, you got to be careful and be holy in your, in your mouth. And it's what you say. Well, you know, that's part of it. It's not all of it. So God, God gives his word, preserves his word. His word is precious. It's rare. It's prized. And God calls men according to his purpose and will and gifts them, unctions them, empowers them to do what he's called them to do. And it's a blessing, but it isn't always a happy thing, I can tell you. I can tell you from experience, the last thing on most people's list when looking for a church is purity of doctrine. That's the last thing on their list. I'm, I'm not kidding you. They don't care about, what's that? I want to know how good the music is. Where are you going to take my kids? Do you have a big bus? You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. I'm not. So then, false doctrine creeps in such that we compromise with worldly principles. And it is rampant today where churches compromise with the world. God has a way of correcting that. He calls them. God, God, God's call is effectual. I remember having thoughts that I quickly dashed when I was a child and a young boy about being a preacher. But my daddy was a preacher and I didn't like anything about it. The way he was treated and the way things people, things people said to him. And I can, 
You know, there's an old song that says, I can tell you now the time I can take you to the place. I could take you right now to the place and tell you the time in July of 1967 when God called me. And I said no. And I said no. And I said no until I said yes. There's nothing you can do about it. You're helpless. You're helpless in the hand of God. The, God, the Word of God is rare. It's prized. God calls, and there's no mistaking. And when God calls, He equips. My daddy used to say, God never makes a bill without paying it, you know? So He takes care of things. It's painful. It hurts. It's a, it's a long and sometimes lonely journey. Samuel's going to find that out. He's going to get mistreated. He had not understood, experienced Yahweh. The revelation, the vision, without, the, without no vision, without a vision, without a revelation, the people perish. The unction of the delivery of the Word of God, people will perish without that. So Samuel is being, pray, uh, uh, being prepared and the effectual call of God changes everything. Look at this. Yahweh continued to call Samuel for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli. Here I am, you called me. Eli perceived that, he was, that it was Yahweh calling the youth. Now this guy was a, was a poor daddy. He was old. He was asleep. His eyes were dim. But God had him at that place, at that moment, at that time to give this advice to that young boy. Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you again. You shall say, speak, Yahweh, for your slave is listening. Samuel went and lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and set himself, presented himself. Let me tell you. Stood, I think it's translated most Bibles, stood. This doesn't mean that the pre-incarnate Christ opened up the Ark of the Covenant, stepped out of it, and walked in there to where he was asleep and said, get up, I'm telling you something. It's not what it means. It means that in a way that Samuel understood, God presented himself to Samuel. Of all of the other people who were around, only Samuel understood only Samuel heard. Only Samuel perceived. He called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your slave is listening. Josephus says that Samuel was 12 at this time. I don't know where he gets his information. I didn't research it that far. But the word that's used in the first verse, the boy, the boy Samuel, is the same word used to describe David, the David who stood in front of Goliath. So he's a teenager, a young teenager, a boy. Speak, for your slave is listening. His life is going to change. Yahweh won't stop. 
with Samuel until he's dead. He won't stop with him until he's dead. Samuel's dead. I ain't feeling too good myself. <laughs> so that's an introduction to what we're going to study in the rest of uh, this chapter that leads us into the great ministry of the prophet Samuel, who takes us out of the era of the judges and into the time of the kings and the prophets. We'll stop there and we'll have our prayer time, deacon prayer time.